If you have your Bible today, I want you to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Now, you see this sign up here that says Crazy Love. This is a, there's a book by Francis Chan, Overwhelmed by Relentless God. I did a terrible thing as a pastor, and I need to confess right now. Uh, other than I forgot to turn my cell phone off, so let's do that right now. Um, I did a terrible thing as a pastor. Last week, I told you you could go to Walmart. I told you you could go to Costco. I told you you could go to Target. Somebody got there ahead of you, and they bought every one of those books. Barnes and Noble is out of them. So is every other bookstore that we know in town. So this is what we're going to do. If you would like a copy of uh, Crazy Love, we're going to try to order them from Amazon. You can go to the foyer afterwards. It's $9, cash in fist, C-I-F is the way we're doing this, okay? You pay up front and you get your book. One time only. We're not going to do this week after week. If you've never read this book, this is what this whole series is based off of, this whole concept of God's crazy love. And it's not too late. There's about 10 chapters. We'll get it to you by the end of this week. And uh, so you can go and see that. It's one of the tables as you go out there. Uh, Donna will be taking the money. Donna, wave at us. There she is. There's Donna right there. You see her and she'll, she'll take your money. She's our bookkeeper, and she does a great job. So that's what we're doing, crazy love. Today we're talking about enduring love. That would be chapter 2 in his book. You'll notice the chapter titles, and my titles are not the same. And in fact, you'll notice a lot of things about what Francis Chan says and what I say are not the same, but that's okay. Enduring love. Now, I need to ask you a question. How many of you have been married at least 25 years? Raise your hand. Ooh, 35. Keep your hand up if it's 35. 35 years? Keep your hands up. Wow. 40 years. Keep your hands up. 45 years. Wow, look at this. 50 years. Wow, look at this. 55? 55 years? Look at the number of people. 50. What really worries me is sometimes it's half the couple and the other half doesn't have their hand up. <laughs> 55 years. Anybody here 60 years? Anybody here? Wow, 60 years you've been married? 60 years. Praise the Lord. I love that. Bud really hadn't been married 60 years. He just feels like it was that long. That was, uh... That's enduring love. How many, let me ask you another question. How many have maintained the most passionate love every day of that 25, 35, 40, 45? I, there's never been a day, never a day that... that yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> you see, there's endurance and then there's endurance. There's quantity and there's quality. Enduring love should be a, a, a long time. But enduring love also is an endurance where every day is that new passion, that new love, that new joy, that new excitement. And you say, well, that's just not natural. No, that's exactly right. God says, I have a supernatural, crazy love for you. And that love can be new every day. Just like his mercies are new every day, it says in Lamentations. God's love can be renewed every day. You see, if I said to you, how, how long have you been a Christian? We could have people raise their hand, 25, 35, 45, 50 years. And the same question, how passionate are you today for Jesus Christ? The same passion you had the first week, the first month, the first year that you were a believer? And you say, well, no, pastor, that's just not natural. Of course it's not. How do you maximize your love? That's the theme of what we're going for over the na next nine weeks how passionate can you be? And you say, well, pastor, I'm just so busy. I'm busy right now, and, and I'll get around to it later. There's a, there's a quote, uh, Frederick Buchner writes, intellectually, we all know that we will die, but we do not really know it in the sense that the knowledge becomes a part of us. The truth is, we all know we're going to die, but most of us are not planning on it happening today. 
we do not really know it in the sense of living as though it were true. On the contrary, we tend to live as though our lives would go on forever. And because of that, we think, well, we'll get to the love part with God later. You know, not today, later. And the the Bible has something to say about this. James 4.14, look at what it says. It says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Thursday afternoon, I went to see Nick Bruno. I I saw him, and and he was struggling physically, and and I prayed with him, and all of a sudden, his eyes popped open, and we we talked for just a a minute or two, and and he was cognizant. He knew who I was. He said, Pastor, how you doing? Are you hanging in there? That's what Nick always said, hang in there. 24 hours later, his eyes popped open again in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? And here's where I'm going with this. God wants us to maximize enduring love. God wants to give us this crazy love, not only for duration, but also for intensity on a day-to-day basis so that that love compels us. God offers us a crazy love that endures in length and in passion is where we're going. And I thought about where we, sh- where we should go about this. But Jesus asked a remarkable question. In fact, a series of remarkable questions to, to one of his followers, to, to Peter. So go to John chapter 21. I ask you to go there. You know the story. And, and John 21, we're going to look at verse 12. But you know the story because it picks up. Peter has denied the Lord. Right before the crucifixion, Peter denies Jesus Christ. And he's devastated by this when when jesus looks at him the rooster crows peter goes out in in tears and agony over what he's done and afterwards when jesus comes back i love the fact that mark says the angel says to the women in the tomb go tell the disciples and peter that i've been that i've been raised from the dead go tell the disciples and peter he knew that peter would need some encouragement but then he also comes to him several days later peter says you know what i blew it i know that my time of of being able to be used by the Lord is over, and I know he called me to be fishers of men, but it didn't work, so I'm going to go back to be fishers of fish, uh, fisher of fish, because that's what I know. And, and look at, because we're going to answer this question, how can I evaluate? How can I evaluate my love for Jesus Christ? How can I evaluate it? Well, Jesus asked Peter to do it. Look at verse 12. We, we pick up, Peter goes back, he's fishing. They don't get any fish. Jesus says, throw the nets on the other side. I love that. 153 large fish. That's a good day of fishing for anybody. Even here, that's a great day. Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, we could go into a whole theological treatise over what is the these, but you know what? It doesn't matter. He's, he's asking him to evaluate his heart. Do you love me more than these? What, these friends? He had six guys go with him, and then these 153 fish, then these uh, trappings of being out on the water early in the morning. Do you love me more than these? It could be any number of things. It doesn't really matter. And I think because it doesn't specify, that's a good thing. The Lord asks us the same question. Do you love me more than these? Whatever your these is. Go back to it. Yes, Lord, he said. 
You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he says something quite cryptic. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. In other words, Peter, you felt like you were in in control of your life when you were younger. You dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. Look at what it says. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Then Peter saw him. He, he, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? I love this. Jesus is saying, Peter, where's your love for me? And he says, yeah, but Lord, what about this other guy? What about John? That's the one who's writing this so he doesn't name himself. But what about John? And look at verse 22. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And then he repeats again, you must follow me. Some writers have said the first words that Jesus ever spoke to Peter and the last words that Jesus ever spoke to Peter were the same thing, follow me. And in a personal sense, I think that's true. Peter was there when Jesus went up to heaven, so I don't know that it's technically true, but I think in a personal sense, it's very true. How would you evaluate your heart? How can we evaluate our hearts? Number one, with whom or in what do I delight? When when Jesus is asking, Peter says, do you love me more than these? What is the these? We don't know for sure. There was a New York Times op-ed piece that I read this last week. I don't normally read the New York Times, but I caught this on the internet. The, The writer is David Brooks. I don't believe David Brooks is a believer, but this is what he writes. Maybe the first decade of the 21st century will come to be known as the great age of headroom. Headroom, what does that mean? During these years, new houses had, been, had great rooms with 20-foot ceilings. And an entire new art form had to be invented to fill the acres of empty overhead wall space in these huge homes. Also, people bought bulbous vehicles like Hummers and Suburbans. The rule was this. The smaller the woman, the bigger the vehicle. So you could see a 90-pound lady in tennis whites driving a four-ton truck with enough headroom to allow her to drive with her doubles partner perched atop her shoulders. When future archaeologists dig up the remains of this epic, they will likely conclude that sometime around 1996, the U.S. was afflicted by a plague of claustrophobia, and drove itself bankrupt trying to find more space. In the coming years, people are bound to establish new norms and seek non-economic ways to find meaning. One of the interesting figures in this recalibration effort is a man by the name of David Platt. David Platt earned two master's degrees and a doctorate from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. At age 26, he was hired to lead a 4,300-person suburban church in Birmingham, Alabama, became known as the youngest megachurch leader in America. David Platt was not happy about this. 
David Platt's first target as he began to think through these things was the megachurch itself. Americans have built themselves multi-million dollar worship palaces, he says in a recent book. Wow, that's pretty tough. Jesus, David Platt notes, makes it, made it hard on his followers. Jesus created a mini-church, not a mega-church. Today, however, building budgets dwarf charitable budgets, and Jesus is portrayed as the genial suburban dude. Get this quote. When we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may often be worshiping ourselves. That's pretty telling. When I read that as a pastor, I thought, wow, that's pretty tough. And then as a pastor, I thought, that's right on. You see, sometimes we come to church and it's all about the big building or it's about the glitz or it's about the glamour, it's about the sound system, it's about the video, it's about this or it's about that. Is that what it's all about? Jesus says, do you love me more than these? With whom or in what do I take delight? In in what do I delight? Peter walked with the Lord for three years. Peter was there day in and day out. He denied him. He went back to fishing. And this is not a recreational trip. You don't catch 153 fish with a net that's a recreational net. He had gone back to commercial fishing. He got, six, he got six guys to go with him. This was a huge trip. And Peter said, the Lord says to Peter, where is your heart? He wants to do the same for us. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 is, if, if anything, one of my life verses. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself, what? In the Lord. Delight yourself in what? In the Lord. What do you delight in? What do you love? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I love verse 5 because it follows up. How? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. So many times we delight ourselves in us. What would make me feel good? What do I like in the style of worship? What do I like in a church? What do I like in a, in a home? What do I like in a job? What do I like in a family? What do I, what do I, what do I? You remember what Rick Warren said, the first sentence in chapter 1 in The Purpose Driven Life? You remember what it says? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about I. It's about Him. It's about Jesus Christ. It's easy to focus on everyone and everything except Jesus Christ. Francis Chan in chapter 2 says, When I'm consumed by my problems, my life, my family, my job, I believe the circumstances are more important than trusting God to take care of those circumstances. What's the most precious to you? Here's a second way you evaluate your heart. Not only do you ask with whom or in what do I delight, but number two, what am I doing? What are you doing? You have a limited amount of time. We have some some 90-year-olds here today. Praise the Lord for every 90-year-old. We have some in their 80s. We have some in their 70s. You know what? The Lord may give you 100 years. We have some members of the church that that are approaching 100 years old. We have some that have attended before that are 101, 102. Uh, Lee Welch's grandmother, Grandma Mert, she's 102, I believe. I I think that's awesome. That's, That's amazing. But, you know, there's always an end time to that. There's a beginning and there's an end. It's appointed unto men once to die. Unless the Lord comes and the rapture takes place, we're all going to die. I I know you didn't show up on Sunday morning to hear somebody say that, but that's true. And you don't know when it's going to be. 
I read an obituary, a strange obituary. Bill Lenore, 71 years old, died August 26, 2010. You know who Bill Lenore is? Bill Lenore was one of the original NASA astronauts. He, uh, he was one of the, I should say, one of the original shuttle astronauts. He went up in the Columbia November 11, 1982. I believe that was the first trip up with Columbia. He was one of the astronauts on that. He had one of the longest spacewalks. I remember Bill Lenore because when I, we were living in Texas at the time, Bill Lenore did something you're never supposed to do. He actually, he actually took some stuff and hid some stuff away, and when he got up into space, he had it. You know what it was? It was jalapenos. He loved fresh jalapenos, and he had his stash of jalapenos, and he ate jalapenos. The only thing he didn't count on with weightlessness, jalapenos were not a good thing to eat, and they actually had to put back the first spacewalk because he ate jalapenos in space and made him sick as a dog. He died, 71 years old. This man had been up, in, this man had tested all kinds of experimental aircraft. He, he was a, a test pilot, had 53,000 hours. That's, I mean, that's a mind-boggling number. I don't even know that that's right, but that's what they reported. 53,000 hours flying. That's a huge number of, of flight hours. 5,300 would be unbelievable. But he had all these experimental flights. He went up in the shuttle. You know how he died? He went out for a bike ride. He fell off his bike. Now, don't come to me and tell me, Pastor, that's why we don't want you to ride the bike anymore. I don't think he had a helmet on, okay? That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Bill and Orr, on August 26th, healthy, strong, vibrant man, went out one day for a simple bike ride, never came home. What are you doing with the time that you've been given? You have a beginning and an ending. What was Peter doing? Peter went fishing. Is, is fishing sin? Is fishing a sin? Some of the stories you tell about your fishing trips are a sin because they're lies, but the fishing itself is not a sin. It, only if you come back and you tell an untruth, then you got a problem. Fishing is not a sin. That's not it. But God had called Peter. He says, you've been fishing for fish. I want you to fish for men. God had a premier purpose for Peter, and Peter was blowing it. What are you doing? What are your priorities? I think that's an interesting thing. I, I found another article. Uh, Chad Gibbs, this guy is a believer, and it was on Crosswalk. I, I love this. It's, it's entitled God and Football. Welcome to the American South, where God and football scrimmage daily for the people's hearts and their minds. Perhaps you think this is an overstatement. Think of it this way. Suppose an alien were to visit Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa Knoxville, Tennessee, or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And if you don't believe in aliens, you can substitute a Canadian. Suppose a visitor, we'll call him Corso, were to spend a week observing the ordinary citizens of these towns. What do you think Corso the alien would conclude about the religious beliefs of these average, ordinary, everyday people? Well, on Sunday morning, he'd probably see them make their groggy, wrinkled-shirted wrinkled shirted way to a steepled building where some sort of ceremony had begun ten minutes before they arrived. Hmm been here. Inside he'd watch as they mouthed the words to songs. They struggled to stay awake while a man spoke for less than 25, oh let's make that 45 minutes. Then for the rest of the week the place would be the furthest thing from their minds unless by chance something tragic happened. Corso might be justified in concluding that the church for most was a court-ordered punishment. 
On Saturday, Corso would see something completely different. The people would wake up early, carefully choose an outfit based on the good fortune it had brought them in the past. Then they would drive, sometimes for hours, to a hallowed campus where some sort of ceremony is scheduled for much, much later in that day. All afternoon long, they would eat and drink and fellowship with friends, family, strangers. Then when the time came, they would all enter a colossal shrine and join tens of thousands of similarly dressed and like-minded people. Inside, they would chant and sing until they lost their voices. And afterward, they would celebrate like they're at a wedding reception on Fat Tuesday. After he sees this, I think it's safe to say Corso will think he's found the one true religion. And he's probably a convert on the spot. Football is big down here in the south, he says. Football is cash cow for the SEC institutions. Get this. This year, the combined athletic budgets of the 12 schools in the SEC is $800 million for 12 schools. That's more money than the gross domestic product of 24 of the world's nations. He he concludes, when you attend a church here... You will almost certainly hear people talking about football. Worshippers will gather before the service and discuss in reverent tones what went right and what went wrong the day before. The pastor will usually reference Saturday's happenings by either praising a team's win or mourning its loss, while oftentimes taking a playful dig at the misfortunes of a rival school. Churches will sometimes encourage this blending of faith and fanaticism with wear your team's colors day. I didn't know we could do that. Or by having viewing parties for big games with halftime testimonies, of course. Conversely, God doesn't get a lot of play in SEC stadiums unless a player injures his neck or your team is lining up for a last-second field goal. Sometimes God is called upon to do some damning, usually of referees or offensive coordinators, but that's it. The SEC doesn't have to add God or anything else to their product to fill the seats. There is a know where your denomination's colors to the game day at SEC, at SEC games. The people have chosen today what they will worship, and it looks like God is a two-and-a-half touchdown underdog to the Tigers, the Bulldogs, and the Gators. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. You say, I don't like football. I didn't get that whole article. Then just substitute whatever it is that you love more than God. I'm not against sports. I love football. Hey, I root for the Chiefs. You have to love football to root for the Chiefs. That's not what I'm talking about. What am I doing that makes a difference for Jesus Christ? Hebrews 4.13 says this, kind of sobering. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give, what's that last word? Account. You're going to stand before the Lord someday, and he's going to say, what did you do with the time I gave you? What did you do? If you only had 30 days to live, what would you do with the 30 days? Would you change anything about the way you lived over the next 30 days? If you only had 30 days to live? Andy Stanley, in in his, his series, The Defining Moment, says, the question is not how much time do you have left. The question is, what are you doing with the time you have left? And here's the third way you evaluate your heart. How dependable am I? How dependable? What do I delight in? What do I love? What am I doing? How dependable am I? Jesus failed. uh, uh, Peter failed Jesus. Peter blew it. And he knew that he had blown it. You remember, he's the one who said, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never disown you. That's what Peter said. And what does he do? Within hours of saying that, he, he blows it. He denies the Lord three times, just as predicted by Christ. Could Jesus count on Peter? Could Jesus count on Peter? My question is, could Jesus count on you? 
If he gave you a big assignment, could he count on you? How dependable am I? 1 Corinthians 4.2. It's a verse that is my father's life verse. Now it's required for those, that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Must prove faithful. What does that mean? It means that not something you do just one day, but something that you do repeatedly. Not something you do once, but, but something that you do for the Lord repeatedly. Sometimes I have people come and they say, well, pastor, for this event, I did this for the Lord. And I think, man, that was great that you did that for the Lord. You did it on September 12th. What a great deal. But what about September 1 through 11? What about the other 11 months? If you want to be faithful, you have to be faithful daily to the Lord. I say, pastor, why are you so hard on us? It's a matter of love. It's a matter of commitment. You know, I... I we think about faithfulness in every other area. I, I bought a Dremel tool uh, some years ago, a couple years ago. I had one stolen, and I, and I replaced it. And when uh, I replaced it, I, this Dremel tool, you know what a Dremel tool is? It's a real high speed. It makes really weird noises. But it will drill, and it will sand. And it, I mean, it's just a really neat little tool. And it's handheld, and it goes really fast. And mine worked great for about, oh, 60 days. I think that's what the warranty was, 60 days. And 61st day, all of a sudden, a short appeared in the switch on the Dremel tool. And, and I, I took it back. They said, well, we're sorry it's out of warranty. And I said, oh, okay, I understand. And I worked on it, took it apart, and I looked at it. And it's got a short, and I can't find the short. And I used it for a while. And sometimes I got it so that if you hit it on the side of the, of the thing, then it would come on. And I would use it until it would stop. And then I'd hit it again, and, and I would do that. I'm sure that that's the way they in, intended for it to be. If you just hit it real hard and it would come on and I would use it for a while but you know what I haven't used that Dremel tool for a, a year in fact I replaced it again with another one if the Lord's given you a task to do and there's a short in your system and you don't do it half the time do you think he's going to put you on the shelf at some point how can I evaluate my love for Christ and what do I delight what am I doing how dependable am I? Well, how can I renew my love for Christ? That's the other part. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. When I was thinking about the other end of this, I, this is the passage that came to my mind immediately. It's, the, it's a passage to the seven churches, and, and we need to renew our love. And the first church that, that he talks to is the church of Ephesus. Look at verse 2, Revelation 2.2. 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. This sounds like a great church. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Let's just stop there. The church in Ephesus is a great church. They have great teaching. They have great theology. They have great works. They have great everything, it seems. Oh, but look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And he gives a three-prong remedy for that. Look at verse 5. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. How do you renew your love? Those three things. Remember, number one, remember how Christ loves you. That's what you have to focus on. Remember the height. What is the apex? What is the height to, from which they'd fallen. It's the, it's the height of God's love. It's not the height of their, their biblical teaching. It's not the height of the best thing they've ever done. What he wanted them to do is remember what Jesus Christ did for you. Remember how much God loves you. 
I, I ran across this verse, Zephaniah 3.17. Look at what it says. Zephaniah 3.17 is, is one of my favorite passages. It's going to be right there. If, oh, it's not up there. Sorry. I'm so sorry, Lisa. We'll get there in a minute. Zephaniah 3.17. I ran across this verse. It's one of my favorites. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I ran across that verse. I'd been thinking about it, and I ran across it, across it Wednesday, and I put it in to this message in, in the Indeed magazine, the, the devotional that we have for the weekend. Guess what? It's in that devotional for this weekend. It's a great verse. Look at, or listen to it again. The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. It's Zephaniah 3.17. It's one to mark in your Bible. I had a... a, a a wonderful illustration of this, almost three years ago now, uh, when our little Lincoln was born, our, our youngest grandson was born in Austin, Texas. He, was, uh, he went to NICU, he he's, has Down syndrome, and he had all kinds of problems with some breathing, and some, he couldn't digest food, and they had a feeding tube in him, and they had, a, they had an IV out of his foot, and he was, had tubes and wires and heart monitors, and, and uh, Nico is, is not a n nice place to be, the NICU. The neonatal ICU is not a nice place to be. And they would say, let us drape the, the cords and you can hold him. And there's cords and there's wires and there's all these things coming out of him. Two different times I came in because we would have to, you could have one or two people at the same time, but you couldn't have the whole family. And I came in one time and, and our daughter, Elizabeth, was there with little Lincoln and she was singing to him. And with all of this stuff, he was looking up, and it was just like he looked into her face and, and realized he was loved. And, and the nurse was standing there, and she said, Oh, I love that. We don't get to see that enough in, in, in ICU. She said, it's, it's too hard for a lot of the parents, and some of them are in incubators, and, and some of the parents don't know what to do. But she said, this is the best medicine that that little baby can have is a mother's love. I came in a little later, and Kathy was there another time, and she had the same thing. She had Lincoln, and I looked down, and she's just singing softly to him. And I thought of Zephaniah. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. How much does the, love, the Lord love us? How much love is there? We are that child held by God, quieted by his love, sung to with love. And when we ever grasp that, it says that the Christ's love will compel us in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to live differently, to love differently. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's not something that we study a lot, but the Westminster Catechism, the shorter one, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I would modify that somewhat, not that I'm a great theologian, but I would say the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's what Philippians 2 says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, and by the way, these are all conditional clauses, if you have any encouragement from, his, from being united with Christ, of course we do, oh, yes. If any comfort from his love, absolutely. If any fellowship with the Spirit, oh, without question if any tenderness and compassion absolutely then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love being one in spirit and purpose do you remember the height from which you've fallen 
Remember how Christ loves you. Number two, repent of what distances you from Christ. Repent of what has pushed you away from Christ. He he tells the church in Ephesus, he says, listen, not only do you need to remember how much I love you, but you need to repent. That's not a word that we use a lot today. When we move from God in disobedience, we need to turn the other direction, but we don't like the word repent. I love Tony Evans. Tony Evans uh, says it the way it is uh, in in uh, a chapter called The Importance of Repentance. Tony Evans says, so John tells us to confess our sins. He uses the plural here. Uh, that's 1 John 1, 9, by the way. He uses the plural here as opposed to the singular in verse 8 because now he's talking about specific sins. He wants us to identify the sin, the lie we told at 10 a.m., the lust we committed at noon, and call it by its real name. This is especially important today because we have a lot of errant theology messing Christians up. I like Tony Evans. People try to put such a positive spin on the Christian life that they end up spinning right, by on, uh, right, spinning right on by sin. That's not how I read my Bible. When Noah was preaching and building his ark, he wasn't saying, something good is about to happen to you. When Jeremiah was put into the pit for preaching, he didn't say, I'm okay, you're okay. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, he didn't say, possibility thinking will move mountains. When John the Baptist saw King Herod taking his brother's wife, John didn't say, smile, God loves you. That's not what people need to hear when they've sinned. Sinning saints and sinners who don't know Christ need to hear what you did was sinful. Now listen to this. It violates the character and love of God. You must repent. I love the way Tony Evans says that. Repent of what distances you. He's referring to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess when our joy, our closeness with with God is broken, we have a clear direction. Confess literally means to agree with God's assessment. What does God think of sin? What does God think of your lust? What does God think of your lying? What does God think of anything that you've done that's distanced you from him? What does he think of it? James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The truth is we think we're the exception. We think we're exceptional people and God's not going to look that way on our sin. Oh, those oh, the other people, those people on the other side of that aisle, boy, those people at those other churches, God's going to frown down on them. But my sin, you know, it's no big deal says don't you understand when should we confess it whenever you sin you say well pastor i'd have to be confessing sins all day long you better get busy it's time to repent and when you do it consider the price that was paid all you have to do is confess and it says he will he will cleanse us he will purify us that's all you have to do but that repentance it may be free for you but it was not free for jesus christ Repent of what distances you from Christ. And here's the last one. Redo what draws you near to God. Redo what draws you near to God. What is it that that you need to do? Well, you need to go back. Sometimes I have couples, no couples from this church, but sometimes I have couples come to me and they say, Pastor, we have a problem in our marriage. We're not happy anymore. And one of the first things I sit down and I'll say, tell me about your date night. And they'll say, our date what? I'll say, date night. Do you have a time when you are still courting each other? Courting? What do you mean? And I'll say to the man, do you open the door for your wife? Well, no, she's got two hands. 
And, and I'll say, when is it that you guys ever are, are trying to win? the? I don't need to win the love. I've been married for 27 years. That's not the problem. And I'll encourage them to court again. What about a date night? Kathy and I, we have a big date night. A lot of times we go to Costco. <laughs> I didn't say it was a good date night. We took a two-week trip across the uh, country this summer. One of the best things we could do, I took all these books on tape and I didn't listen to very many of them because we spent most of the time talking, just spending time with one another, rekindling a love. You need to do that. That's why we have the men's retreat. That's why we have the women of faith. That's why these things are important. You say, well, you know what? I'm just not comfortable being around other guys. They may ask me to pray. We're not going to ask you to pray out loud. Oh, well, they, you know, I, I may get some, to have to bunk with somebody. It's one night. Well, I might... No, you might come into the presence of Almighty God and have your love for Him rekindled the way it was originally. James 4.8 tells us this. Come near to God and He will come near to you. I think the, the Master of the universe, the Savior of all mankind, the one who created us with a word, is waiting for us just to to come here, to come to him, to come and know him and to love him and and to grow close to him because he says, if you come near to me, I will come near to you. Too much of church today is too much akin of reading a 1040 IRS uh, page form. Too much of church today is is so methodical and so boring that we've lost the sense of who it is. The truth is, church should be more like the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember that? Big, huge rock. We're going to think, I think Alex is going to have a big, huge stone and Lisa and Alex will push it off and it's going to come tumbling down the middle aisle and you're going to have to run to get out of the way. And you say, well, that's crazy, pastor. That's just, that's just crazy talk. If you knew the kind of crazy love that had bought you and won you, you would, you would have a thrill to be here. Takes your breath away. Takes your breath away. I'll close with this, because we never know how much time you have. Remember God loves you, how Christ loves you. Remember, repent of what distances you from Christ. Redo what draws you near to Christ. True story that uh, Francis Chan tells in his book about Stan Gerlich. Stan Gerlich was was not a pastor as far as I know. He was just one of the the men in the church, and they had a funeral, and they asked Stan Gerlich to get up and give the eulogy. He was supposed to tell the, this is when he was born, this is when he died, these are some of the things, the highlights of this man's life, and he did that, but he got to a certain point in the man's life that he was giving the eulogy for, and he says, so wait a second, I need to stop here for a second. He said, I need to tell you the most wonderful story ever. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Stan Gerlich took John 3.16 and began to just talk about it. And he said, you know, it's, it's not something you earn. It's not something you, you go to church to do necessarily. It's, it's what God has done for us. It's not what you do. It's what God has done for us. And he presented who Jesus Christ was. He said, this is who Jesus is. And one of the comments that he made is, you know, you could die at any second. Are you ready? 
Stan Gerlich gave his eulogy and walked over on the platform. There were two chairs there. And Stan Gerlich sat down in his chair. And the minute he sat down in his chair, he slumped over to the side. And he had a heart attack. And he died. You could die at any second. Are you ready? You could die at any second. Are you ready? You know what I love about this? Francis Chan just coined the the phrase beautifully. One minute, Stan Gerlich was saying, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he has done. A minute later, Jesus Christ is saying, this is who Stan Gerlich is, and this is what he did for me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on home. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to give you the same challenge that Stan does. You, you, you could die at any second. Are you ready? Are you ready? If not, you can come. You can sit here on the front row. Someone will talk with you, will pray with you. They'll tell you what Stan told you about the love of Jesus Christ, a, a price that was paid for your salvation. If you don't know him, we'd love to do that. It's not about joining a church. It's not about earning your salvation. It's about grace. Father, you know each person who's here today. And Father, this service is truly not about me or about them. It's about you and your crazy love. A love that's wider and deeper and more intense than we could imagine. And a love that you want to maximize in our life every day of our life. So that we think differently and desire differently and and work differently and, and become faithful differently. Father, you want to test our hearts today to know where our heart is. And just like Peter, you sit down and say, do you love me? Do you love me? I have a task for you. Do you love me? Father, we just want to know what that means and how to live it out. So that we can experience and we can spread your crazy love. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.